Let's pray, and then we're going to try to dive into as many questions as we can. And so some people had some very specific questions that may not relate to the overall congregation. We probably won't get to those kind of questions. And there will be questions that we will sometimes answer by referring you to other sources or to my teaching library where we've, I've already maybe dealt extensively with it just for the sake of time. Uh, but let's pray and let's just seek the Lord. It's good to, to have you with us today and let's just commit this service to the Lord. Father, we just uh, ask now that you be glorified as we open up your word, try to answer as many questions as we can. We thank you, Lord, that you have all the answers. We are limited in our understanding. Now we know in part But one day when we're with you, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And so we pray that you would help us in these days to be wise and discerning and to have the knowledge of your word in our hearts. And we thank you for this time that we can gather together in your house, be glorified now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to set up my computer. I'm going to let... uh, one of these guys go ahead and take one of the first questions. So I'll go ahead with the very first question. It's a really good question. What is the meaning of holiness and what does the Bible mean when the Bible says that God is holy? And I really like this question. Um, when I hear the word holy, the very first passage that my mind goes to is Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah sees the throne room of God and he sees these pretty awesome heavenly creatures the Bible calls seraphim. And Isaiah notes that the very words that are coming out of these heavenly creatures' mouths are, is the word holy. And they say it three times, holy, holy, holy. It's the only place in the entire Bible where you actually see that word in that kind of triune setting, holy, 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 in describing God. And uh, the Hebrew word for that word holy, it's the Hebrew word kadosh. Pretty cool word, right? Kadosh. And it means something that is completely unique or distinct or different. And that's what God is. Um, Think of um, the sun as an illustration, S-U-N, the sun. Um, The sun in our solar system, uh, it's the only sun in our solar system. It is completely different. It is unique. Um, And and that's what the Bible means when the Bible describes God as holy. God is something that is completely distinct or different. There is nothing or no one like God. Um, And so it means, um, holy means, that's what God's status is. Uh, but it also speaks to his moral purity and his integrity. And so that's what the word holy means biblically, that God is different and unique and there's nothing or no one like him. And that's the Hebrew, the did Kadosh, I say, Kadesh. Did I say the Greek? No, but you just didn't, oh. met, you didn't specify. The Hebrew, in, yes. In the New Testament, it's hagios, I think, for, for holy. Yeah. And we're called to be holy, too, as he is holy, which well, is some to of be us. separate. Well, Not you. some of us do it better than others. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try to tackle this question because this, many people asked uh, this question and it relates overall to the topic of COVID and vaccines and mandates. Um, And so I'm going to read some of these questions that that are very similar and there's many more that came in that I I won't read them all. Uh, Somebody said, my question is, I I got COVID and was fine. Then my job forced me to get the vaccine to keep my job and now have a very guilty feeling and burden. Should I feel this way? Uh, Somebody else, um, would getting vaccinated so that others aren't caused sickness and death be considered loving your neighbor? Um, 
Uh, also curious for your current perspective on the worldwide pandemic fear mandates, how or if this may be related to the end times and the coming of Christ. A lot of people were asking, um, is, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? Okay, so, and many other questions that came in related to, the, to this topic. So, uh, but one of the questions I want to read, because um, I, I feel like I need to address this since it was asked this directly. Um, for the Q&A service, why has COVID become a religious topic instead of viewing it as a medical topic? The church seems to be synonymous with a stance that is lax on COVID. And I, I'm assuming that the individual means our church in particular, but uh, because of the way the rest of the question goes. The church seems to be synonymous with a stance that is lax on COVID. The church states it has no official stance on the COVID vaccine, which we have said that on our website, so that's why I think this is specific to us, yet offers religious exemption letters, which we do on our website, and also at no point recently has encouraged practices to limit the risk of transmission. Other churches are more proactive uh, on these measures, and I'm wondering why Cornerstone seems to be the only environment where considerations of COVID are suppressed or largely ignored. So, um, let, 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 me, let me address this as, as best as I can, and I want to try to be careful because this is a sensitive subject. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of people have died from COVID. Um, you know, we, we've been touched by it um, as a staff um, through various family members of, of our staff, not on our staff directly, but various uh, uh, staff family members. Um, I've lost a couple of friends. So this is real. This is uh, something that has affected people on many different levels. Um, and I also want to clarify something, too, that um, people have emailed because they've misunderstood things that I've said. So I want to be clear. I am not anti-vax. People have accused me of this. What I am, though, is anti-mandate. And why is this something that we should even talk about? Some people have, uh, have said, you know, as, as one of the questions uh, intimated, uh, it, why is this a religious issue instead of just a medical issue? Why are we talking about this? Okay, um, here's why we're talking about it. When the government uh, mandates a vaccine, um, it becomes something that as Christians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There is a, an important distinction between personal responsibility and government overreach. At the point where government is telling you that you should put something in your body and removing the choice that you have, then it becomes a religious issue in my mind. Because now we're talking about, well, wait a minute, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I need to have an understanding of what God wants me to do with my body. If, if you have the freedom to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. If you feel like you don't want to get the vaccine, don't get the vaccine. But we shouldn't be shaming each other for doing it or not doing it. Now, I know what some people say, and, and there's a legitimate argument about fetal cell lines that were used to develop the vaccines. But the problem with that argument is fetal cell lines were also used to develop Tylenol and aspirin and Claritin and Benadryl and a lot of other things. So for me, the issue really comes down to 
1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What are you to do with your personal body or not? But here's why it appears to some people, as the question expressed, that we seem to be lax in COVID policies and protocols. Let me tell you something. Nothing makes sense with this. There have been so much conflicting information, even among scientists and the medical community. If someone were to say to me, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? I could give you another medical argument why that doesn't work. Okay? Uh, How many of you remember when they first said, um, get the vaccine and it'll prevent infection? And now they're saying, get the vaccine and it'll prevent hospitalization. How many of you remember when they first said, don't wear masks? Wearing masks, put your fingers up by your face and it could uh, infect you. And then it became wear a mask. And then it even at one point was double mask. Okay. I had an ER doctor in our own church about a year ago come up to me saying, an ER medical doctor saying, you know that most of these masks are completely ineffective. The size of the virus versus the pores of most of these masks it doesn't even, it's like shooting a BB through a chain link fence. I mean, it, it's, it's ineffective, okay? There's so much conflicting information. Remember when they used to say six feet of distancing? Now they say three, okay? Um, they, they used to say 10 days of isolation. Now they're saying five. That just came out a couple of weeks ago, five days of isolation. Now check this out in the medical community, and then I'll explain why I'm giving all these different scenarios. You can be in the medical field, let's say a nurse. You can test positive for COVID, but under the new CDC regulations, after five days, you could still potentially test positive, but you're able to go back to work. But someone who is unvaccinated, a similar person in the medical field, unvaccinated, tests negative for COVID, can't go to work in that same hospital. In other words, it's not making sense. And when things don't make sense, when people say, well, why don't you follow different protocols? Have you been following the news, even the USS Milwaukee? They, they shut down this Navy ship because COVID was rampant through the whole ship, but it was 100% vaccinated. Everybody on the ship was vaccinated. When you look at all of this and you say, this seems a bit confusing. It is. Because... People don't really know. We don't really know. So, as a pastor, since nobody really seems to know all of the, you know, what is the right protocol, because the protocol keeps changing, and things are, have such variables. As a pastor, what am I to do? Just say, well, we'll just shut down the church until they figure this all out. They're not going to figure it all out. So... We will open the church, and then people can make personal, responsible decisions about this. If you feel like I don't want to come to church, if you feel like I don't feel safe, I don't want to come to church, watch online. We stream it all online. If, you ha- if, you, you know, if you're in the categories where you're high risk, you, you probably shouldn't, but it's still your choice. You can wear a mask or not wear a mask. You can social distance or not. I mean, it comes down to personal responsibility. Look, 
there's a fine line. I, I get it. People are like, well, don't you love your neighbor enough that you, you know, should tell people to get vaccinated? The vaccines don't stop infection. They've already proven it now. So, so it, it comes down to personal choice and personal responsibility. And so, you know, we'll open the church because Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of believers. We shut down for about six weeks when we thought this was going to, you know, be death in the millions. All right. But then we open back up and uh, we don't want to forsake the assembling of, of believers. And people can make decisions and choices. We don't shame anybody for what their decisions or choices are. That's a long answer, but because I got so many questions on this, I just felt like, and again, for those who are like, well, this isn't really a, a church issue. We, the government's made it a church issue. When they've said, you will either lose your job. The government just discharged 200 Marines. 200 Marines who are serving our country because they have personal conviction about not getting the vaccine and they're not accepting the religious exemption and employers you're going to get fired unless you know by the way there's going to the supreme court is hearing all of this january the 7th and so we need to be in prayer about this because this is going to come down to you know government control or personal responsibility and um it is serious i get it and people are grieving and people have lost loved ones i get it i'm not minimizing that I'm just saying at the same time, and by the way, people have asked, is this the mark of the beast? Uh, Look, this is not the mark of the beast because in the book of Revelation, the church is gone before the mark of the beast. Okay, we haven't been raptured yet. But I will say this, this is a precursor to the mark of the beast. It is priming people mentally and psychologically to be prepared for the government to tell you if you can go into certain places or buy certain things based on whatever passport you have. And in that day, the mark of the beast will either be on your forehead or on your right hand. But it's preparing people for that because people are going to get used to this. Oh, I can't go into this store unless I show a certain thing. I can't buy unless I... It's preparing you for this. You shouldn't feel guilty if you had to get the vaccine, if you felt like... a, You know, if we have... I, I don't fault missionaries who are like, they want to go on the foreign mission field and they, and they need to get a vaccine. I mean, it comes down to personal responsibility. Um, it's not the mark of the beast, but it certainly is paving the way for it and preparing people for it. So um, a long answer to the questions, but many came in. So I feel like I needed to address it. All right. You guys jump in now. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> tagging along with the mark of the beast thing, too. It. I've had questions come up like, what if I accidentally got the mark of the beast? And you'll know <laughs> that you'll get the mark of the beast. Um, yeah, but we won't be. But we won't be here. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying. Well, in it Scripture won't... too, doesn't it say that there will actually be, God will send an angel yeah. flying around to warn people about it? Yeah. So Pretty they, cool. it's not like you're going to accidentally, whoops, I got the mark of the beast. You'll, it's an allegiance thing to the Antichrist, I think. Anyway, I have a question on death. Sorry. Anyway, it's not a joke, but someone did ask, are Christians who have died and are in heaven able to see their families on earth? People often say that their loved one is looking down from heaven. And I want to tag along another question that said, um, it talked about, where is it? I lost it. Oh, what really happens to us immediately after death? Are we in the grave or are we with the Lord? So the first one about, are Christians who have died in heaven 
um, or I died and in heaven now, able to see their families on earth. Um, looking up in scripture, it never really talks about Christians or the saints or the righteous people looking down from heaven. It does talk about the Lord looks down from heaven. That's in the Psalms a lot, but um, I, I don't think Christians are, are necessarily looking down at their loved ones. You've got to remember, heaven is in a different dimension in a way. There's no time in heaven. We, heaven is a fascinating subject to study. Um, I, re, I recommend the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a really good book. Um, but it's, I heard one uh, quote actually from the lead singer of Mercy Me um, when his movie came out, I Can Only Imagine, great movie. He did, he had that question, do you think your father who got saved is looking down at heaven and proud of you? And he said, I don't think my dad is looking down at heaven, could care less about what goes on on earth. I think he has much better things to do in heaven right now. Um, so that's where I, I lean towards that as well. I think that um, in, in the glory of the Lord and um, when we're with him, that that's going to be the only thing that matters. Um, and that us here on earth will be reunited with them one day. Um, but it doesn't really talk about Christians look down from heaven. It, it only talks about the Lord looks down from heaven. Um, and the other question about um, what really happens to us immediately after death. Are we in the grave or are we with the Lord? The famous verse, 2 Corinthians 5.8, talks about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't believe in a soul sleeping. Uh, we don't believe that you're just in the grave and then um, one day you'll be resurrected. You're, now, your spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven immediately. Um, your body, uh, the physical um, portion of yourself, is, is in the grave, but it will be reunited with your spirit, and then we have a glorified body. Um, but we don't believe in a soul sleep. We do believe that you're immediately with the Lord once you die, if you know him. And, um, and then your spirit will be reunited with your body into a glorified body. That's 1 Corinthians 15, I believe. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, I'll go even further. Revelation twenty one four says that, that in heaven there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. I don't think anybody in heaven knows what's going on on earth because it would be too devastating. It would be heartbreaking. It would be grieving for people in heaven to see some of the things that are happening. So I think that they're sheltered from that, and, and I, I agree. There's too much wonderful stuff going on in heaven for them to be concerned about what's going on on earth. Um, and yeah, be careful. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in soul sleep, the doctrine of soul sleep. It's a false doctrine. You stay in your grave until Jesus comes, and then, then you come out of your grave. That's not biblical. And what Tyler quoted there from Paul is what's biblical. You have one? Uh, yeah. Um, this is a question on the Holy Spirit. Someone asked, why do we pray to God and Jesus but not the Holy Spirit? And what is the Holy Spirit's role? And I love questions about the Holy Spirit. Um, why do we pray to God and Jesus but not the Holy Spirit? Well, when, when, you, when you're praying, because God is three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, um, you are praying to the triune God. It's not as if the Holy Spirit can't hear your prayers, but God the Father can. So you are praying to God in his entirety. Uh, usually my mind when I pray, I, usually I think of it in these terms. I'm praying to God in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul, in Romans, he says um, that sometimes we don't even know what to pray, and so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us um, and, and prays on our behalf with, with groans unspeakable. Um, so the Holy Spirit is involved in our prayer life. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Um, go home and read John chapter 14. I love that passage in Scripture. 
Um, Jesus, before he is about to be crucified at the cross, he talks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. And I love the tender way that Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I am going to give you the gift that my Father has promised, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then comes on believers in Acts chapter 2. But in John chapter 14, Jesus characterizes, characterizes and describes the role of the Holy Spirit, and he calls the Holy Spirit the helper and the comforter. Some translations say the counselor. And it's a Greek word, it's a, the Greek word parakletos, and it literally means one who comes alongside, um, like a le- legal advocate, one who comes alongside and defends and comforts and counsels and encourage, uh, encourages. So the, the role of the Holy Spirit um, in the life of the believer um, is one who comes alongside us, who fills us. Paul also says that the same spirit, the same power who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So when you come into relationship with Jesus, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit strengthens us in our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit encourages us and comforts us. The Holy Spirit gives us counsel and wisdom. A couple other scripture verses. The Holy Spirit teaches us um, and reminds us of things in John 14, 26. Um, the Holy Spirit guides us. That's Romans 8, 14. The Holy Spirit commands us in Acts 8, 29. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. I mentioned that in Romans 8, 26. Um, the Holy Spirit calls us, Revelation 22. The Holy Spirit works in our lives, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And the Holy Spirit also fills us and empowers us. Um, and that's Acts 1.8. So I love the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, because the beautiful thing is as a Christian, um, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean life's going to be easy now. And so that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to continue to persevere and to suffer with a good attitude and to have um, strength supernaturally that we can't find in and of ourselves. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I got this. uh, This is several uh, people sent this question in having to do with watching online church versus attending a local church. This person asked, uh, is it important to physically attend a local church? My wife and I tithe to God and have been active with a small group, but have not found a suitable local church. Since we love Cornerstone, but live hundreds of miles away, we watch every service remotely. What are we missing according to scripture? So this is a good question. And, um, you know, look, the dynamics of, of church have changed in the last two years. Um, as, as we've been telling you guys during this past summer, when we did baptism services after our Wednesday night church service, we would have people from eight or nine states come fly in or drive in just to be baptized because they saw Cornerstone as their local church, though they watched it online hundreds of miles away. I mean, we had people from Arizona, California, all over the country coming in. And um, by the end of the summer, people from 19 different states had come just to be baptized. That doesn't even speak about the number who are watching online. The dynamics of churches have changed. And one of the things I think we have to keep in mind is that we've gotten used to how Western church operates. By that I mean, you have to remember that for the first couple hundred years, of early church history, there were no Christian churches. In the first 10 years after Christ ascended, when you look at the book of Acts, the first 10 years, you didn't even have any Gentiles saved. They were all Jews who were saved. But where are they going to go to church? Because the synagogue 
at that particular time, the Jews who attended synagogue did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. So you have believers now who have no official church location to go worship other than house churches, meeting from house to house. In Acts chapter 8, the church went underground because of persecution. What does the Christian church look like in China? What does the Christian church look like in Saudi Arabia where it's illegal? So to, to say that everybody has to come to a local church is not necessarily accurate historically. You didn't have Christian churches until the 4th century AD as a place where people could meet. Um, but I want to be careful to also say that where you can find a local church, you should. Where you can have that fellowship within a local body, you should. But one of the things that has happened in the last year and a half or two years that has dramatically changed the dynamics of the church are two things. Number one, COVID. COVID shut down a lot of churches. And so we hear people who watch online saying, my church shut down, it never reopened. And the second thing that has contributed to a changing dynamic of the local church is that many churches have gone woke. And, be, bet, and those churches should shut down. Okay? And between the churches that were affected by COVID and shut down and the churches that became woke, I, I want to be genuine with you. A, an evangelical Christian church that is orthodox in faith and practice has become more and more rare and more and more difficult to find. And so for people to say, you know, there's a church on every block, but it, it might be closed or it might be woke or they may not be teaching the Bible and where, where can I be fed? And so they've turned online. I, I'm not going to say that that's wrong. I, I think if, if that's the way you stay connected, then that's the way you stay connected. Hopefully, if you have online church, you also have at least a local small fellowship where you can gather in your home and have Bible studies so you know other Christians and you can have that kind of fellowship and camaraderie that we need. But I think that this is here to stay now. Uh, our, our online, just our YouTube subscribers went from 3,000 to like 117 or 18,000 now. Um, just in the last year and a half. That's just subscribers. That's not viewers. People actually subscribe to our YouTube channel. The online audience has grown exponentially because of the factors I've already said. And I think this is here to stay. I think this is a new dynamic for the, for the church. But again, I would emphasize if you can find a local church, you should be a part of it in person but if you can't, I think online church now is something that the Lord is using to help minister to people. Guys, what do you have? I have one. Um, it's on Revelation. I really like these questions. It says, most of you maybe have seen this. How does the beast in Revelation compare to the one that was put in front of the UN building in New York? What does this mean for us? Um, if any of you are familiar, um, this came out um, early December but the UN placed a, a statue outside their headquarters in New York, and it's um, kind of an eerie statue, but it's an image of a, um, this beast-like creature of a, a lion with eagle's wings. Um, and so people are kind of like freaking out, wondering, what does this mean? Um, and it is very interesting. And so Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 do talk about the, the beast, um, and that Daniel sees visions of four different beasts, but let me read you Daniel chapter 7, 
talks about a beast with the body of a lion and the wings of an eagle. Um, Daniel spoke and he said, I saw my vision that night. Behold, the four winds of the heaven um, strove up the great sea. Four beasts came up the sea. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then uh, John wrote in Revelation 13, he says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. It had feet like that of a bear, the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, which is Satan, gave him power and great authority. What's also interesting about this is when the UN tweeted this, they said, quote, a guardian for international peace and security sits on the visitor's plaza outside UN headquarters. Um, people are also wondering, it's very interesting, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul talks about this, about peace and security. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child and they will not escape. Um, so it is very interesting. It's, it's, we could be seeing the stage being set or things that will happen before we believe in a pre-trib rapture. So things that may start happening that we see before we are taken away um, to be with the Lord. But look up, CBN did a great article. If you go look up the, the UN sculpture that looks like an end times beast, I just say, just be prepared. Because um, this question was asked, um, what does this mean for us? Um, just be praying and be firm in your, in your faith in the Lord. And you may see things that start coming up to the surface and scripture is, is going to be fulfilled and Satan is the ruler of this world and he is um, an authority in that sense. And so we are going to see things start popping up. Um, but you really can't make this stuff up. The Bible is what it is. It has predicted so many things and it will come to pass. Um, but the UN right now with New York placing that, that beast-like image, um, very, very interesting. Um, and there will come a time where, where Jesus will come like a thief in the night. No one's going to know when he's going to come. He's going to come quickly um, and suddenly. And so we just need to be ready. So if, if you're not a believer, you need to get saved. If you are a believer, just stand firm in your faith. And uh, these things are going to happen. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Um, and so that, I take hope in that. It is interesting to see, you know, certain things lining up. And, you know, in the Bible, when you see prophecy, I always keep my eyes obviously centered on Israel because that's the focal point of Bible prophecy. But then the nations that come against Israel. And you see right now Russia flexing its arm and, uh, you know, positioning itself against Ukraine to take Ukraine. Potentially, you see Iran developing its nuclear capabilities, and it wants to destroy the big Satan and the little Satan, the United States and Israel. And then you see China and China, you know, threatening with Taiwan. And, um, you know, in Revelation 9, it talks about an army that came from the east with 200,000 soldiers. Um, and, you know, China already has uh, 200,000 soldiers ready to you know, to go at any, at any time. So, um, it's interesting to just see different things lining up even now. And these things, you know, I think are birth pains. It's like, you know, it's the Bible talks about birth pains. The Bible talks about, you know, this isn't actually, um, you know, the part of labor, but it is, these are the Braxton Hicks. These are the, these are the get ready signs because times are changing and always be, you know, watching because, 
it should alert us. You know, this, this beast, this picture, we don't, I don't have an image to, to show you, but if you've seen that image outside the UN building that they, that they put up recently, it is very eerie. It's like, wow, somebody must have been reading the Bible when they fashioned this thing because it, it certainly looks like something described in the Bible. Austin, what do you have? Someone asks, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And this is a really good question. I think it depends, um, you know, for the unbeliever, um, fearing the Lord means um, God's judgment. And it's a very scary thing. And uh, God's wrath and uh, God's condemnation on the unbeliever. Um, So if you don't know Jesus, um, get right with God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And so you can come under now a new, different kind of fear. Because for the believer, fearing the Lord... Um, it's a different kind of fear. God is not this, God is not anything to be afraid of. It's a healthy fear, understanding God's rightful place in your life, God's authority. It's, it's having this awesome reverence for God. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 is a good description of this. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so this reverence for God is exactly what um, I mean by fearing God. It's having this, this awesome, healthy fear of, of God. You know, growing up, I, I was afraid of my dad, and I kind of still am. I, you know, he's now, he's, now he's my boss. And so, um, but it wasn't this, I was scared of my dad. We had a, we, and we still do have this great relationship, but it was a healthy fear that um, my dad's in charge and my dad is my authority. And so it compelled me to live a life of obedience. I didn't always do the best job. I, I still, he still spanks me today. But living in this healthy perspective of my, my earthly dad is my authority and it compels me to live a life of obedience and that is also our perspective with our Heavenly Father. That I'm, I have this healthy perspective of God knowing that He's in charge, that He's the creator of the universe, that He flung the stars into space with the breath of His mouth. So He has a lot of power and a lot of authority. So God, I'm not going to live uh, by my own means, by my own standards. I'm going to live by Your standards. You're, you're, you're the greater authority. Um, and, and when I live my life with that perspective, that God can, can run my life better than Austin can, it always goes so much better, right? And so when we live with that perspective of God in mind, that he's in charge, he's my authority, what God says goes, because he is all-powerful, um, there, there is, um, he does correct those whom he loves, and uh, that's what Hebrews also says, that he disciplines those he loves, so... Um, I, I would rather um, learn by submitting myself to God and his authority rather than being corrected by God and rebuked God, by God and disciplined by God. So um, that's what it means to fear the Lord. If you're a believer, you can have a healthy perspective of God knowing that he's in charge. So it compels us to live a life of surrender. Well, believe it or not, we're just about out of time. So I'm going to take one more question. And then after I answer this, maybe you guys can be prepared to share a couple of resources you think would be helpful to people because uh, I know, Tyler, you have a book or two, and you might have a website or two. Yeah. Um, I, I got several questions that people wanted clarification, because last week when we showed the video by Amir Sarfati, he mentioned about the Book of Life and the Lamb's Book of Life, and I got a lot of questions asking about that. There was, uh, I think, some confusion, and I, let, let, me, let me explain what I think Amir meant, and I'm gonna, I have a slightly different um, angle to, to what he said. I think what he was saying was that when, when somebody is born, their name goes in the book of life. 
And then when someone gets saved, puts their faith and trust in Jesus, their name is transferred to the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I, I, I slightly disagree with that, and I'm going to explain why. It is true that in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about how, and books, plural, were opened. So there is more than one book. Um, but when, when you look at the book of life, the book of life is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, and one other time only in the New Testament in the book of Philippians. Um, the seven times it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, the book of life, um, two of those seven times, it is attached to the lamb. It either says the lamb's book of life or it says the book of life belonging to the lamb. So my slightly different take is I think it is one and the same book that the book of life is the lamb's book of life. The book of life belongs to the lamb. Now, when I look at Scripture and you look at, you know, whose name is written in the book of life, it does appear to be that everyone who was physically born, their name goes in the book of life. Their name goes in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb. And those who die at a young age, let's say an infant, or, or someone who was too young to make a decision for Christ— their name is already in the book of life, okay? And that's a whole other discussion that I, w- I will substantiate biblically as to why children, even though we're all born into sin, as to why children will still go to heaven. I'll, I'll give you one quick uh, scripture reference. Uh, in the book of 2 Samuel, when David loses his infant child, when, when that infant child dies, David says to his attendants, Uh, After he stops weeping, David says, he cannot return to me, but I will go to him. David already knew that when he died and and went to heaven, he would see his infant child. Okay. So I think it answers the question of everybody's name goes in the book of life initially when they're born, even though we're all born into sin. There's God's grace for those who are too young to make a decision for him. Their names are already in the book. It's also interesting in Revelation chapter 3. Um, and in fact, let me see if I can give you the exact, and verse five, Jesus, Jesus speaking in, uh, in, in that letter to the church in revelation three, he says to him who overcomes, I will not listen to this. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So it, I don't, I don't read scripture and think that your name gets transferred. I think that everybody goes in the book of life, and if you receive Christ as your Savior, then your name doesn't get blotted out. If you don't, then it gets blotted out. So, just wanted to try to clear that up. I personally think the book of life and the Lamb's book of life is the same book, although it does talk about books, plural, in Revelation 20, 12. Um, But I, I think that that's, your name starts there, and your name can stay there if you trust Christ as your Savior. Otherwise, it does get blotted out. If you, if you reject him. Someone said, what is the difference between hell and the lake of fire? And there were a lot of questions on heaven and paradise. <clears throat> so first off, um, I want to recommend some resources. And one of them is gotquestions.org. And um, there are different terms in the Bible used for hell and heaven. If you've read your Old Testament and New Testament, you'll see words like Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, lake of fire, Paradise, Abraham's bosom. It can get confusing. Um, I'd really recommend this book. It's by Mark Hitchcock. It's, it's 
titled 55 Answers to Questions About Life After Death. So everything about heaven, um, people have a lot of questions about heaven. I also recommend Randy Alcorn's book. It's called Heaven. It's a great book and resource. But basically the difference between hell and the lake of fire is hell is now is the temporary holding spot um, for those that are unrighteous. Um, those that have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a temporary holding spot. And that, the Bible makes that clear because in Revelation, it does mention the lake of fire. Only in Revelation does the lake of fire appear. It's Revelation 19 and 20. And it mentions the lake of fire as the second death. And it says clearly in Scripture that death and hell, or Hades, the Greek, were cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14, and that is the second death. The lake of fire will also be for the Antichrist, the false prophet, fallen angels, and then everyone else that has rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, and it's a place of torment. Um, it is not something that they're annihilated. The Bible doesn't describe that. Um, it says that they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And anyone's name not found in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire as well. So hell right now um, is a temporary holding spot for those that don't know Christ. Um, that's where they will go and then they'll be transferred in a way to the lake of fire. So there is a difference between the lake of fire and hell. Um, but again, I would recommend that book, 55 Answers to Questions About Life After Death. It, it gives a description on um, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Paradise, Abraham's bosom, um, are, are they all the same or are they all different? And they, there are some differences um, with that. And so Old Testament was, was different the way the Lord did it. And now it's a little different now in the New Testament time. But um, it's a great topic of discussion. And again, um, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, is a, is a great resource. So I'd recommend that. Um, here's a question that we received on social media. And it's... Uh, from Miranda. She asks, why don't we hear the audible voice of Jesus like Paul did in Acts chapter 9? And it's a really good question. I've gotten this question often. Why does it seem like God speaks to people in the Bible audibly all the time, but his audible voice seems silent now? Why don't we hear from the Lord in that way? And it is true. The Bible does audibly speak to people. Um, God speaks audibly to people in the Bible um, in many instances. Um, Exodus chapter 3, God spoke audibly to Moses at the burning bush. Um, In the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, God spoke audibly to Joshua. Um, God spoke audibly to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. New Testament, Jesus speaks audibly to Saul, who later changed his name to Paul. Um, That's Acts chapter 9. So does God still speak audibly to us today? Um, Well, I think, of course, obviously God can speak audibly uh, to us today if he so chooses, but here's what we have to keep in mind. Um, when, when we read all of those different, exes, um, all of those different examples um, at the burning bush, Moses at Exodus 3, Joshua and Joshua 1, Gideon and Judges 6, uh, we have to keep in mind that we're, we're actually thumbing through 4,000 years of human history. And so it's easy for me to jump from Exodus 3 then to Joshua 1 and Judges 6 in a mere manner of minutes. Um, but actually, we're thumbing through 4,000 years of human history. So God speaking audibly was always the exception. It was never the rule. And so we have to keep that in mind because it does seem easy for us to thumb through Scripture and, and think God spoke audibly all the time to people. And uh, why, doesn't, why does he seem 
uh, silent now, um, but the Bible covers a lot of, of, of history there, so we have to keep that in mind. Um, can God still speak audibly? Of course he can, but I think that's the exception, not the rule. And so primarily, uh, how do we hear from God? We hear from him in the pages of his word. So get in the word consistently. If you want to hear God speak to you, I don't necessarily mean audibly, but I mean that God will impress upon your heart um, his word and his truth by his Holy Spirit through prayer and through the word. So get in the word consistently. Um, pray, ask God to speak to you by his Holy Spirit, and um, that relationship, God guarantees that he will speak to us um, by his Holy Spirit through the pages of his word um, on a daily basis if we will uh, allow him to do so. I'm going to take some questions with really quick answers. Um, one person asked, is cremation biblical? I get questions on cremation almost every year. Uh, yes, there's nothing wrong with cremation. In 1 Samuel 31, they cremated Saul's body. To, from dust you were created, to dust you shall return. It just is a quicker process, friends. That's about it. Cremation takes two to two and a half hours at 1,600 degree Fahrenheit. And natural decomposition takes about two and a half decades. Take your pick, all right? And by the way, if you're scattered at sea, don't worry about your resurrected body. God who formed the universe will create your glorified body out of the scattered atoms at sea. It's fine. It all is going to return to dust. Uh, Somebody asked, why the mandate about coffee in the sanctuary? Well... Um, we're just trying to follow the Biden administration. That's all we're trying to. No. Um, the, look, the reason is because we just want to keep God's house clean. You know what coffee spills look like? Okay. So bring water. Don't bring coffee. If you love your coffee more than Jesus, you probably need to get saved. All right. Uh, we, we want to try to keep God's house clean. That's the reason. It's just like, you know, drink your coffee before or after. But please, we're just trying to keep God's house clean. It really does ruin the place. So please, just water. Someone else real quickly said, uh, why does God call David a man after God's own heart when he committed adultery and polygamy? This always confused me. Um, The Bible does call David, um, uh, say that David was a man after God's own heart, even though he was guilty of those sins. But here's the thing about David that's important for all of us to understand. He had a sensitive heart towards God, that when he came under conviction, he was quick to repent. It's not that David lived a sinless life, and that's why he was a man after God's heart. It was that David was quickly broken over his sin when he was confronted or convicted about it. That's the thing that God loved about David, and that's what he loves about us. We're not going to be perfect people. We will sin, but how quick are you to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and to uh, cry out for the mercy of God? So that's why he's a a man after God's own heart. Guys? I love this question, um, and so uh, here we go. Um, this is basically who are the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis. So Genesis six talks about this passage, and then Job chapter one and two also mentions the sons of God. Um, I tackled this a little bit, I think, last year. I still recommend this book by Dr. Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm. I also add on a new book that I'm just now reading. It's by a guy named Ryan Peterson. And it's called The Judgment of the Nephilim. Fascinating book. And it does talk about in um, the Bible, in Scripture, who are these sons of God, the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. It is a weird passage, but it is um, part of history and it's in, it's in our Bibles. Um, the sons of God, were, we believe, were um, angels that fell from heaven. And then they came to earth and 
um, had sexual relations with women and produced this race that the, the Bible terms as Nephilim, which can translate giants. Um, I believe that's where Roman and Greek mythology got all their legends and myths with Hercules and Cyclops and whatever. It's all back from Genesis chapter 6. Um, it sounds sci-fi-ish, and I think it's because it, it kind of is a little um, interesting with the angelic realm coming down to our humanity um, and then corrupting the, the DNA and, and so forth and so on. But Job chapter 1 and 2 mentions the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them, and God has a conversation with them. These sons of God, they're not men, they're not people, they, these are angels. Um, now the sons of God in Genesis 6, then they, they fell from their place, and then Second Peter and Jude talk about this incident where they sealed their fate and they will be reserved for the day of judgment. They, uh, you know, they will not be redeemed. They had a choice. They chose to rebel, just like Satan chose to rebel. Um, and God is holding them in the place of judgment. And I believe that they will be released, these fallen angels, in the tribulation. Revelation chapter uh, 10 through 13 talk about that. Um, and so it's, a, it's interesting stuff to mention that. But again, those books, The Unseen Realm and... The Judgment of the Nephilim, fascinating books um, that I would recommend. Um, we're getting a lot of questions on tithing and why is it in, important to tithe? Is it necessary to tithe? Um, I want to take you to um, the book of Malachi, Malachi specifically, Malachi chapter 3. Now, this is Old Testament, but I'm going to apply Old Testament principles to um, our day and age. Um, is, is tithing required? No. Um, but tithing is a great way to condition the heart to continually give things over to God and surrender what God has already given you back to the Lord so that uh, you're, you're not always um, in the, having the, the grip of greed. Um, yeah, why don't you define, for people who don't know what tithing, tithing is? Um, tithing, in uh, the biblical sense of the word, tithing uh, literally means a tenth. So it's giving a tenth of what you have uh, back to the Lord by giving to the church and giving to the resources of his kingdom. And so in the Old Testament primarily, and I think probably, Dad, I got this from one of your teachings because I have the notes in the margins of my Bible, but three reasons for the tithe in the Old Testament specifically was to support the priests, to care for the people, and to repair the temple. And tithing really is a way that we can practically show God today. Again, it's not required. A lot of people think that um, by tithing, um, God looks more favorably on you and it earns you some kind of merit in God's kingdom. Um, we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by our works, not by how much we give. But practically, what does tithing do to condition our hearts? Well, tithing is a way that we worship the, the Lord as the provider of all things. So it's a way... Uh, just to, Lord, I'm going to give you, because every good and perfect gift comes from God. God gives us the ability to work and make money, the Bible says. So everything that you have is God's. We're not owners of, of anything. We're managers and stewards of everything. So giving a tenth, uh, just 10%, God says, I, I'm gonna, I want to test your, your trust in me as the provider of all things. I'm going to let you live off of 90, and I want you to, in response, to give back 10%. And so it's a challenge for us to steward God's money well, and it just is a way for us to worship the Lord. God, I'm going to trust you that, yes, though things might financially be 
tight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you that you're going to take care of me. So I'm going to worship you by, by giving back what's already yours. And then secondly, it conditions the heart against greed and selfishness. And you can write down 1 Timothy 6.10. 1 Timothy 6.10 and 2 Corinthians 8.7. And those verses just speak to um, when, when we hoard and hold everything that God has blessed us with, it conditions our heart to just maintain this selfish, greedy mindset. But actually, it is more freeing when you... When, when money doesn't own you, because you know these people, either, either you own money or money owns you. And the way that you be free from that grip of greed is you say, God, I'm going to give back to you and I'm going to help advance the kingdom financially um, just by, by, by pouring back into the community and, and the church that I serve in. So um, that's just biblical, biblical principles on, on, on money. And, and I think even, Dad, you can correct me, that Jesus speaks more on the topic of money than almost any other... He talks more about, about possessions and yeah. material things than heaven and hell combined, Yeah, as far as the subject goes. So it, it's, important. That's a, it's an important topic to, to the Lord in the Gospels even to um, not worship your money, but to worship the Lord. And the way that you do that is you say, Lord, I'm just going to be faithful to give a, a portion of, of what you've already given me back to you and back to the local church. Yeah, we're not under the mandate of the law for regarding tithing. You know, and I tell people like, you know, do I have to give a tenth? You could give twenty or thirty percent if you'd like. You know, um, see where our mind goes. We always want to like, what can I do as the minimum to get by? And it's, but you know, tithing transcends the law. Uh, Abraham gave tithes six hundred years before the law was given. And in Matthew twenty three twenty three, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees of the day. He said, "You do tithe." Uh, a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So, like, he endorses the concept of tithing, but it, it, really, is, it really is something that we have to, you know, grow in. It's not an easy discipline, but it is something that reminds us that God is the owner of everything, like Austin said, and we're just the stewards of it. Somebody asked, why must Catholics confess sins to a priest? I've been in a few conversations in the last few weeks with some Catholic friends that tell me this is what the Bible says. I feel like I can approach and confess sins to Jesus directly. That's true. Can you please help me to share the truth better on this matter? So in, in John twenty twenty three, Jesus says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, and there are many of you who have Catholic backgrounds. How many of you are unashamed about saying, yeah, I have a Catholic background. Just go ahead. All right. You're, you feel a little guilty even being here, don't you? <laughs> it's like a little bit of that Catholic guilt. It's like, I'm not even sure I should raise my hand on that. But, um, but I tell people, look, probably a, a fourth or a third of our church have Catholic backgrounds. And um, this is one area where biblically, um, just to be straight with you, um, the Catholic Church has gotten it wrong. And they take a verse like this and they think that it means that I have the power or a priest has the power to absolve you of your sins, but you have to confess your sins to a priest in order for the priest to absolve you. That verse that Jesus, that I just quoted, that Jesus said there in John twenty twenty three, does not mean that the church wields the power of forgiveness. It just means that heaven has the authority Uh, to forgive, and that the church expresses what heaven has declared. What heaven has declared is that 
If you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins to Jesus, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you want a verse for your Catholic friends to help them see this better, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 5, um, which says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is in, in the biblical sense, the God-man. He's fully God and he's fully man. But 1 Timothy 2.5 says that he's the only mediator, not another human being. And so, yes, you can confess your sins directly to God. You don't need to go through another person. Jesus died on the cross for us. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. We pray to the Lord and we can have our sins forgiven directly. So, there you go. All right. Um, you awake down there? Yeah. Okay, all right. I'm just studying. Studying. Someone asked, what happens to the people that are saved during the tribulation? Um, and so, this is a, a very interesting topic. And there's, there was also a question about, do you think that there will be a great world revival before Jesus returns um, with this church? And so, I want to kind of answer both back to back. This um, doctrine or this topic on what happens to people that are saved during the tribulation. Um, I believe that people will have the opportunity to get saved during the seven year tribulation um, and that God will make a way with the gospel being presented, the, the two witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, um, and that people will have the opportunity to still get saved. Though it does talk about many will still reject Christ um, and curse at him. But those that get saved, um, and survive the tribulation and do not receive the mark of the beast, um, will then enter into the millennial kingdom, which Jesus talks about um, in Matthew 28, separating the sheep from the goats. Um, and that those that rejected him will go to everlasting punishment. And those that accepted him will come into the everlasting kingdom, the millennial reign. Um, and so the, I do believe that people will give it, be given a chance, although it will be much difficult because the, I believe the church will be gone. The Holy Spirit will be taken a back seat. The Antichrist will be here. Um, Satan will be in full power. Um, it's going to be a very dark time. Um, and this last world revival, yeah, it's definitely possible um, that one can happen before the return of Christ, although the Bible makes it clear that there will be a great apostasy, um, which means rebellion or falling away from the faith before Christ returns. Um, so that, that is definitely um, biblical, and Paul makes that clear. That's in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, and that Jesus even mentions that in Matthew 24, that there'll be a time where many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will, will come. Um, and so I think that there will be a time of great falling away and rebellion. And you do see now Christian um, music, musicians or authors that are now falling away from the faith. And you'll see it happen, I think, but I think there will be a time of global rebellion um, that doesn't mean that there won't be a great revival, though. We do pray and hope for that, and God can do miracles. But Paul makes it clear that the, a time is coming before Jesus comes back that there will be a great rebellion. Mm-hmm. Let me take one here, Dad. Yeah. Um, someone writes, um, how do you walk humbly with God? Um, and they reference Micah 6, 8. And this is what Micah 6, 8 says. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? 
but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I really appreciate the question because whoever's asking this question recognizes uh, their need for humility. And if you don't think that this question applies to you, then you probably have some pride. So um, how do I walk humbly with the Lord? Um, humility, um, in, a, in an easy definition, um, humility is the absence of pride, just as um, darkness is the absence of light. Um, humility is the absence of pride. And so how, how do I cultivate humility in my own life? Um, well, first, you have to recognize um, that God is, God is my authority, and, and in, in com- when you compare yourself to other people, you, you, always, you always can find someone that's, you know, you, you're a little bit better than, or a little bit cooler than, or you have more skill sets than them. But the Bible actually doesn't call us to compare ourselves with other people, but to compare ourselves in light of an all-powerful, holy, awesome, um, authoritative God. And so when you begin to look through that lens of God is big and God is powerful, God is holy, um, it, it then sheds who you are in the truest sense that sheds that kind of light on you. Okay, I'm, I'm not holy. I'm not um, perfect. I do sin. Uh, I'm not all powerful. And so uh, we begin to compare ourselves with other people. And that's what puffs ourselves up because I, you know, we can always find someone who um, doesn't match up to our skill set or whatever in the workplace potentially or on the ball field. I'm a little bit better, uh, better fielder than this person is. And so we puff ourselves up by comparing ourselves with other people. The Bible calls us to compare ourselves to God. Um, I recommend go, go to the teaching library, listen to a, a message that Pastor Andy gave on this uh, topic um, from Micah 6, 8. You can just go to the teaching library, look up Micah chapter 6, and he, uh, the title of his message was The Seven Symptoms of Pride. And he, he, he kind of just helps us ask some different questions to gauge where our heart and our mind and our attitude is. Um, and some of the questions, some of the things, seven symptoms of pride. One symptom is I find fault in others, or I can't learn from other people, or I feel defensive, I feel entitled. So that's a good message to go and, and listen to from Micah 6, 8 from Pastor Andy. Okay, I'm going to uh, hit three questions real quickly, and then I want to come back to you guys and just ask for some resources that you can recommend to people. Um, somebody asked, uh, a few people asked questions about they're going through anxiety or depression is there a resource or a teaching on that? I actually taught on this, it was a few years ago, but um, if you go to our teaching library and look up 1 Kings 19, uh, the title of the teaching was, God help, I'm depressed. God help, I'm depressed. It's 1 Kings 19 on our teaching library. If you go to cornerstonechapel.net, go to the teaching library and just uh, search 1 Kings 19, it'll come up and hopefully that, that'll help you. Uh, somebody asked about Matthew 24 in reference to Jesus foretelling the future in Matthew 24, specifically verse 34. What did he mean by this generation not passing away until all those things take place? Matthew 24, 34, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And it's a good question because Jesus in, in chapter 24 he talks about future events but yet the generation he was speaking to had passed away. So how do you reconcile that? But the generation, the word generation in the Greek language is genos. And genos means race or generation. He's speaking specifically about the Jewish race will not pass away until all these things happen. So even though the Jews will be dispersed, persecuted, slaughtered, 
that race will not pass away until these things take place. So um, that's what that word means there. By the way, a lot is on the horizon right now with prophetic things. Keep your eye always on Israel, but look around Israel, what's happening. You know, Russia's on the move to Ukraine. China's on the move to Taiwan. I think, you know, China plays a part in the end times too. Um, and you see Iran developing nukes and um, and so they're, they're more and more a threat. I think Israel's going to go ahead and do what they can to take out Iran's nuclear capabilities. But they got, they got some issues flying that distance and refueling and all of that. But th- there's some things on the horizon there. Um, lastly, and then we'll leave you with some resources. I got many, many texts about when are we going to have communion again? And what's the status of communion or the Lord's Supper? Um, again, you know, when COVID hit, we did try to be smart about some things and like reducing touch points, which is why we haven't passed the offering bags for almost two years now. And again, thank you for your generosity. You went online and you continued to give. Um, and for the same reason, we didn't pass the, uh, the uh, communion uh, plates because of touch points, you know, especially we have the, the matzah and people are digging their fingers in the bowls as it's going by. And by the time it gets to the end of your row, you're like, oh, great. Even before COVID, did that like freak you out a little bit? It's like, you know, Terry and I were at a, at a church service for friends years ago and they did it the old fashioned way where there was the pastor down front with a single chalice and then a loaf of bread. And you had to get in a line and take a pinch off the bread and drink out of the chalice. And I said to Terry, I said, we're going to be the first ones down down the line. As soon as he says go, we're running. And that's what we did. I would have, I'm going to be the first. I'm not going to drink backwash after all those saints that probably a lot of them weren't even saints, you know, drank out of. But anyway, so. You were drinking wine. No, I don't. Yeah, you were, you, you were getting look, drunk at communion. No, I was not getting drunk at communion. This is even before you were a thought, so don't even worry about it. Um, but but so here's the deal we have been looking into they do have these little contained uh communion elements and the grape juice is in this little plastic thing and you have to pull this hermetically sealed you know lid off of and then you have the wafer and then you can drink the juice so we're probably going to go to that as a way to have communion with but still reducing you know all the touch points it just seems as it's intended sterile to me it's just like okay time to remember the lord's you know body and blood you know and like you know okay it just feels weird right but i guess it's better than nothing so we're probably going to be looking to to try to do that at least until things get better in terms of of uh you know health and stuff um but but then we got to be smart about that too because after every service, we don't want to be picking up your trash after, you know, then you leave your plastic containers on the ground and stuff. So we, we, we're figuring it out. We want to bring it back. We just, we, we want to be smart about it. And, you know, I wish, I wish a lot of things could return to normal. I wish we could go through airports and not have to go through TSA pat downs too, but that's, that's just the way it is now. It's just the way it is. Can you explain why forgiveness is so important to God. It's difficult for me to forgive those who have hurt me. So I really appreciate this question. The idea is, um, why, why does God hold forgiveness with such weight? Because I have difficulty with forgiving other people who have hurt me or offended me. 
Um, well, really, number one, forgiveness is so important to God because only forgiven people enter into his perfect kingdom. Um, heaven is a place of perfection and righteousness and holiness. That's a problem for us because the Bible says that we are all sinners and we've all fallen short of that perfect, glorious standard. And so what did God do? Well, he sent Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, to die on the cross for our sin, to take God's wrath so that in Christ, if we surrender to Christ, um, God credits Jesus' righteousness to us. So now God sees us as he sees his perfect, righteous son, Jesus, if we've repented of our sin and we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So now sinful people like Pastor Gary can go to heaven and can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. So the, the crux of the gospel has to do with forgiveness. God offers us forgiveness if we repent and choose to follow God. So that's why forgiveness is so important. And now the question becomes, okay, well, I've been forgiven by God, but how do I now extend that same forgiveness to other people? Um, How do I forgive people who have hurt me so bad? And it's a difficult thing to do, but the first thing that you have to keep in mind is, and the very first question you should ask yourself is, in order for me to forgive someone who has hurt me so Uh, so much, um, how much has God first forgiven me in Christ Jesus? If I have rebelled and disobeyed God um, for so much, um, how how could I withhold forgiveness from someone who has offended me, um, you know, in comparison to how I've offended God? um, It's, 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 it's little comparatively. I don't want to trivialize any, anything that you, you may have gone through. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So you ask God, how, mu- how much have you forgiven me? I've offended you. And then, then that helps you to then better forgive other people who have hurt you. I love um, Peter. He tries to sound really cool to Jesus when G- Peter says, Jesus, how much should I forgive my brother when they have sinned against me? And, and Peter says, should I forgive them seven times? And I think he was looking for Jesus to like compliment him like, great job, Peter. And he said that because the rabbis thought that forgiving someone three times was, was a lot. And so Peter, he, he, he more than doubles it. He says, should I give them, forgive them seven times, Lord? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, Peter. And I'll save you the math. That's 490 times. Now, Jesus didn't literally mean to forgive someone 490 times, but the, the idea is that you should continually be in this mindset and attitude of when someone offends you to have a heart of forgiveness toward them because God in Christ has forgiven us of so, so much. I forgive you. <laughs> As you should. Tyler? All right. I have an end times question. Uh, Someone has asked, what happens after the rapture? And can you give a timeline of events that would take place on earth and in heaven? Um, So the rapture is a great topic of discussion. And just to be clear, we we believe in a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. And we believe that the Bible makes the strongest case for that. That the rapture must happen before the seven-year tribulation begins here on earth. Um, and we find the word rapture nowhere in the Bible, but it's in the Greek and the Latin translation from 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, when Paul says that we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word caught up is 
harpazo, the Greek word, and then the Latin is raptus, and we get rapture from that. Um, so the rapture has not happened yet, um, but I believe it will come someday, and I think someday soon, and I hope someday soon, that we will be with the Lord forever, um, and the seven-year tribulation is happening and occurring on earth. Um, a great resource I want to give you, you can find it online, um, but Don Stewart, he's, he's a fascinating um, Bible scholar and Calvary Chapel um, theologian, really, about end times, and he wrote uh, an excerpt called A Timeline of 50 Last Days Events, and you can find it online at educatingourworld.com, educatingourworld.com, and he goes through a timeline of everything that's supposed to happen from the beginning of the rapture unto um, the new heaven and the new earth. And so, in a nutshell, when the rapture happens, we have the seven-year tribulation that happens here on earth. The believers are in, in heaven with the Lord. Um, devastation and destruction and chaos is happening here on earth for seven years for those that did not accept Christ. Um, and then we will come back with the Lord to reign and rule um, on earth what is known as the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign. That's Revelation chapter 20. And then from there, there's still the great white throne judgment. That's for non-believers. Then you still have the he- new heaven and new earth that meet together. Still a lot more that's supposed to happen. But the millennial kingdom, I'm looking forward to because that's supposed to be a literal God's kingdom here on earth. Um, that's not heaven. That's, that's here on earth. God will rule and reign. Um, no more presidents, no more popes, no more kings. God is the sovereign king of all. And he will rule and reign. And I'm looking forward to that. So... That's what we believe. The rapture, seven-year tribulation, we come back with the Lord for the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And again, many resources that I, I can recommend another time, but Don Stewart, he's a great, um, a great resource to, to look up. A couple of months ago, I just finished going through the book of Revelation. If you go to our teaching library on our website, there was a graphic I put up that shows like the timeline of events, so that might be a helpful resource to you. Um, I'm going to answer two questions back to back because they both have to do with with weddings. But one is, this is very sad. Listen to this. My name is Nikki from Georgia. My fiance recently passed away unexpectedly and we didn't have a chance to get married. We are planning on getting married. We were planning on getting married this December and he passed away on December the 19th. Will he and I be together again in heaven as a couple like we were here on earth? We are both saved, so I know he is in heaven. I am hoping he will know who I am, and we will pick up where we left off. So remember, Nikki, in your prayers. Um, This is a a very heartbreaking um, text. And um, Nikki, if you're watching, or to to people who want to know, like in general, what's the status of marital relationships in heaven? Jesus actually tells us in Matthew 22, verse 30, that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, for we will be like the angels. Now, in, like the angels in the sense that they are not married. They, um, you know, belong to the Lord. And that's ultimately who we belong to. We belong to the Lord. We are married to him. In the Bible, it speaks of, uh, metaphorically of how Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. So in heaven... There is no marriage. Um, 
couples who are married on earth now will not be married in heaven. We will, and I don't have time to develop why, but we will know each other. We will recognize each other. Um, but our devotion and our affection will be towards Jesus. And all I can say is any, any kind of relationship you enjoyed on earth will, will be different, but only that much better in heaven. So, um, so for Nikki and others who've been wondering, um, we're, we're not married in heaven. We, our devotion, our affection is, is for the Lord. Now, the second question um, goes like this from somebody else. Thanksgiving Day, our daughter announced her same-sex wedding. As is our belief through the Word of God, marriage is between a man and a woman. A few days before Christmas, we received a letter from our daughter. She wrote that if we did not attend the wedding, we would no longer be in her life. Our hearts are breaking over this loss. We are concerned about our daughter's salvation. Have we made the right decision? We would appreciate your thoughts. So this is, this is tough. This is, this is real-life stuff. It's very, very difficult when there's this kind of um, heartbreak in a family and this kind of division in a family. But yes, the Bible makes it clear that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. And our culture has not only legalized and normalized, but has now celebrated same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. Um, But that's just not what the Bible teaches. And, um, and so as, a, as, as Christians, um, this, these parents are wrestling with this as to whether or not to go to a same-sex wedding. Now, even though it's legalized now in all 50 states, here's the deal with a wedding. A wedding, people think when they go to a wedding, they're just there as spectators. That isn't actually true. When you go to a wedding, you are celebrating this union. Otherwise, you shouldn't be there. If you don't think that, I don't care who the people are, whether it's a same sex or, or even a, you know, an opposite sex, a heterosexual couple that you're like, these people I don't feel should even be married for whatever reason, then you shouldn't go to the wedding because a wedding is a, a celebration of this union. You are affirming this couple. Uh, that's why it used to be that people were asked, remember in the ceremony and back in the days, like, who, you know, who thinks that this couple shouldn't be married? Because it was the opportunity for somebody to stand up and give, and give reason. It was legitimate. So going to a same-sex wedding means that you are endorsing it. You are condoning it. You are celebrating it. And um, I don't think as believers we can do that. But that said, how do you still build a bridge with people that you love? Um, I would suggest you find another creative way to still try to maintain relationships. Now, if, like in this statement, the person has decided, if you don't show up, we don't want anything to do with you, then that's hard to change. But on your part, you can at least say, I would recommend something like this. Hey, I, I just can't attend your wedding. Um, you know our stance on it because we're trying to obey Scripture. But that said, we love you. Um, we don't want to shun you. Um, and so can we have dinner on, on another day? Can we, can we still connect? Can we still stay in touch? If they don't want that, then that's their decision. But you can still do the best you can to build some kind of relationship for the purpose of loving them, but not condoning, okay? And also not condemning. 
Uh, it's an opportunity for you to try to build a bridge to help them understand. Listen, we're taking a stand on what God says. We're praying for you to come to the same understanding, but we still want to show our love for you as our, in this case, as our daughter. And so you have to start to get creative with it. But um, it's difficult these days because whenever the Bible says something and then culture says something completely differently, and in this case, same-sex marriage has been completely, you know, culturally, legally celebrated and approved. Now you look like you're the backwards person, you're the hater, you're, you're you know, living in the old days, and all you're trying to do is stand for what is right and what is true, and you're trying to figure out how to be uh, truthful, but also in a loving way. Because we, we've got, a, we've got a, our work cut out for us as Christians to try to um, you know, love people in same-sex relationships so that they don't feel shunned, they don't feel unwelcome, they don't feel unloved, but at the same time without you compromising what you know to be true according to the standard that God outlines in Scripture. So it's, it's not easy, but that's what we have to do. I have a good question here. Someone asks, do Christians need to follow Old Testament rules? If so, why don't we? It seems to me that we follow New Testament rules and just conveniently pick Old Testament rules that we like. So first question, do Christians need to follow Old Testament rules? Well, it's, it's important for us to always keep in mind the Old Testament law was not written to Christians. The Old Testament law was written to the nation of Israel. And within the Old Testament... Uh, you can count 613 laws, 613 laws. Now, you can neatly divide those laws into three predominant categories, the moral aspect of the law, the ceremonial aspect of the law, and the dietary aspect of the law. Uh, There are dietary aspects of the law, what, what should you eat, what can you not eat, ceremonial aspects of the law, about Sabbath days, or which feasts should we celebrate, and the moral aspects of the law, like don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Um, The Bible says that Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, that all of the Old Testament, specifically the law, was foreshadowing and pointing to Christ. And when Christ came, he was the substance, the the end of the law. Uh, And Paul actually says, and I'll read it here, um, basically the New Testament Paul uh, says that the ceremonial aspects and the dietary aspects of the law are no longer binding, although the moral aspect is. And this is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink. Okay, so the dietary aspects or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, all right, the ceremonial aspects of the law, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So Paul comes along and says that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament in totality, that he was the substance. So the Sabbath, for example, the Sabbath is a, is a good principle that we, I think, should still abide by. It's no longer a command, but Jesus ultimately was the fulfillment of the Sabbath in that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of our Sabbath. You can have complete rest 
in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that the Old Testament is irrelevant now. Uh, Jesus summed up the Old Testament in two commands, love your neighbor and love God. And he says all the rest of the law and prophets hinge on those two, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that basically is the sum total of the law. So doesn't mean, hey, you know, I, I can just do whatever I want. Old Testament's irrelevant. Now, the Old Testament was a picture um, of Jesus Christ. This is what I'll just end with Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul would later say that the, um, the law was... Um, pointing to Christ, the law expressed his need for a savior. He said, I didn't even know what coveting was unless there was a law. So God gave us a law to expose our sin so that we could then be cleansed by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So the law helps us expose our sin so that we don't run to the law to be cleansed. We're not saved by works, but so that we can run to Jesus Christ and be washed freely by his grace. Yes. So I heard somebody once say, and this is helpful to me, the law is like a thermometer. It can't cure me, but it can show me that I'm sick. Yeah. And then that, that motivates me to find a savior. And I'm sorry because I was reading other questions. I don't know if you, if you said it this way, but moral, dietary, and ceremonial aspects, the ceremonial and dietary fulfilled in Christ, the right. moral code of still the law intact. is right. still intact. That's why don't commit adultery, don't steal, honor your father and mother. It's all good, it's all good stuff. All right, Tyler, what do you have? I still abide to the dietary. Do you? Is that okay? No, because I like my shrimp. Yeah. I saw you eating bacon this morning. Yeah, yeah, you were eating bacon in my back office. What are you talking about? Yeah. Forgot. Go ahead, go ahead. All right. I like this question. Is the Garden of Eden still on earth? Hmm, interesting. Um, I have heard crazy theories. Um, I'm going to, short answer is no. the theories out there are, um, I've heard things of, you know, was the Garden of Eden like a, a portal? Was it a other dimension? We've got what? Spider-Man with multiverses now. <laughs> it, um, the way it's described in Genesis chapter 2, mainly, you've got those four rivers. Um, I, I believe the Garden of Eden was somewhere in the Middle East. It would be very interesting, you know, if everything took place in Israel the time of Jesus, and you have Jerusalem there, you know, if, if everything was always right there in Israel, I, the way the Bible describes it, it would be more like Iraq that the Garden of Eden was located in, but the best biblical illustration I've heard is that the Garden of Eden was, was somewhat in a way of like heaven on earth, and you had this intersection of the natural and the spiritual realm together, and once mankind sinned, once Adam and Eve sinned, um, that intersection slowly dissipated, and uh, it's going to circle back with Revelation chapter 20 in the new heaven and the new earth. You see the Garden of Eden described again. It's going to just come right back where heaven, the new Jerusalem, meets earth again. Um, but you do see in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you, you've got cherubim, you have Satan as the serpent, an angelic creature talking to Eve. There's no surprise there. There's no shock. You have God um, walking in the garden, communion, communicating with Adam and Eve, like audibly. It was a very interesting, fascinating time with the spiritual and the physical realm together. And then once mankind again sinned, that kind of slowly went away. Um, 
I don't think we will ever find the Garden of Eden. People have searched for the Garden of Eden. Um, well, we've had the flood. Since and we've had the flood. I was going to get to that. Right. We've had Sorry. the flood. <laughs> hey, honor your father and mother. Uh, yeah. No comment. <laughs> I threw you off now, didn't you I? Threw, oh, where was I? What were the four rivers, what? the headwaters in, in the Eden? The Tigris, Euphrates, Pishon, and Gihon? Correct. Okay. So we only know where Tigris and Euphrates are today in Iraq. So right. it might have been somewhere there, like you alluded to. But, but the flood, the totally flood could have totally destroyed. reconfigured. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I love that, those kind of topics. Genesis chapter 1 through 10 is my favorite section of the whole Bible. And... Um, it's fascinating stuff to talk about, but I, I look forward to asking God a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And again, you see it in Revelation chapter 20, full circle. With the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to close with this because our time has escaped us. And then um, maybe if you guys can mention some good resources, like some books or websites that might be helpful to folks. But this is also a Genesis question. This comes from an 11-year-old in Minnesota. And uh, she wants to know, since we are all descendants from Adam and Eve, how did all the different skin and hair colors come to be? That's yeah, a good question. And so an 11-year-old, um, I mean, there are 30-year-olds who want to know this too. Um, it, it's, it really is simple because when God created man out of the dust of the earth, okay, and, and we truly are scientifically, chemically, our bodies are the same elements as dirt. It's mainly hydrogen, oxygen, and like 15 other trace elements. The human body is the equivalent of dirt. Um, and when God created man uh, in his image from the dust of the earth, the genetic code had that earth-like uh, tones and colors and features. That's why you can see rich black soil, and I've seen white sandy beaches. And you have every earth tone in between. It's all part of our, the genetic code of humanity. But that's the reason why you don't see purple people or green people, um, because that's not an earth tone. We are created from the dust of the earth, and to the dust of the earth we shall return. So... Uh, good question, um, but that's where it came from within our genetic code. And then just as uh, people multiplied, that genetic code took different shades. Um, and environment shaped some of that too, but that's, that's how all the different shades came to be. Uh, all right, because we've run out of time, share a couple of quick resources before we close in prayer. Yeah, and you can actually um, follow us on Instagram, and we are um, going to, because we've done three of these services we've mentioned a couple of different resources you can go find on our story our instagram story uh, you'll be able to see all of the different resources we've talked about today but one of my favorite websites is got questions g-o-t got questions.org you can really just type in anything um like you search the word tattoo should christians get tattoos and they'd, they'd have a good biblical article on that um, but, you know, I know a lot of us are probably starting like new Bible reading plans. I'm just going to actually recommend um, to, you know, use books as supplement, but get in, get in your Bibles and uh, read the Word of God. And if you, can, if you can read four chapters a day, every day, you'll finish your Bible in less than a year. If that sounds too much, just read two chapters a day. You'll finish in less than two years. And what I've been doing, I've been challenging myself to read a chapter in Scripture and then write one sentence on that chapter because it helps me to focus um, while I read because I can, my, I, you know, I'm ADD. My mind, my, my brain can just go anywhere. Um, you know, I'm his son. So, he, you know, I, that's not me. I, You're not describing me. No, no, no. Own yeah. your own sin. Okay. 
so it's I not get, really a sin. Now people with ADD, is that a sin? It's not a sin. I get distracted. You don't even have it. You're not I get distracted it. very easily. Yeah. So it helps me to keep focused when I write about what I've just read. So write one sentence, not, not you know, something long. Just write one sentence summary about the chapter that you just read. And by the end of the year, you'll have your own little Bible commentary there. So it's my challenge to you this new year. I didn't know that. You didn't know he did that? You didn't know? Uh, no. Oh. No. But no, I didn't know four chapters a day. You finished the whole Bible. Yeah. You can not, actually not finish bad. the whole Bible in 13 hours if you sit down and read it. All right. Well, not, yeah, if you're geeks like you. No, right. I, haven't, I haven't done that. I'm just telling you. I read my Bible in one day. You're the one who's writing a... <laughs> You're the one who's writing a sentence after, okay, 17 chemical elements. Yeah. Our voice has like changed to L. The sport coat on today. Yeah, like, I, I'm trying, trying to act s- like a professor. Look, I have to be the trendsetter for you. Go ahead. All right, Tyler, down at the end. Okay, I've got some good resources you can look up. If you're Bible prophecy nerds like me, this is a great one. I recommended it last year. The Harvest Handbook of Bible Prophecy by Dr. Ed Heinsen. He did talk about it when he was here last year. Um, everything you want to know about Old Testament prophecies, end times, and revelation, it's a great resource. And then this book, I love, I give it to our graduating seniors as well, and I'll use it. It's called 77 FAQs about God and the Bible. It's by the McDowells, Sean and Josh. And it's everything from explain the Trinity, um, how is the Bible different from the Quran, really good topics and an easy read to discuss. So this is a great resource. I'd recommend this one. And I uh, love for creation studies, Dr. Henry Morris, the beginning of the world. It goes over the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis from a scientific and mathematical standpoint. So that's a good resource, Dr. Henry Morris, and the beginning of the world. But we will post all this on our social media in case any of you forget. Um, and um, yeah, anything else? Love you, Dad. Oh, yeah. Nah. <laughs> this is sucking up. He's just sucking up. Sucking up. <laughs> I love you guys too. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, We love you. We do praise you. We look to you for the answers, Lord. We have many questions, but we thank you that you know all the answers. And so we commit the rest of our day to you, Lord. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.